I chose for the topic of today's shir uh, the idea of some ideas about Sfirah Omer, and I wanted to have a specific focus on Lagba Omer, which, uh, crazy as it is, since we have no sense of time in the Corona universe, uh, is actually coming up in less than a week. And in order to uh, kind of give us a, a basis uh, to tie those two together and to uh, have a, a way of thinking about both the Omer in general and specifically Lagba Omer, I chose the thought of Rav Asher Weiss. I assume a name that needs no introduction, one of the most prominent uh, poskim in Marbitze Torah in the world today. What is striking, which not everybody knows about, is that even though he's most well-known as a posek and an ish halacha, but he's actually a tremendous, tremendous uh, darshan when it comes to mili Agada and machshava and musr and his orus and devrei chasidus. And in fact, he has three separate volumes that are published on the calendar on the holidays, on the Yom Tovim, just from the perspective of Musr, Machshava, so to speak. I'll show you, this is a copy of them. Uh, this is the way uh, it looks here, I don't know if you can see that. This is Minchas Asher, the Sichot al Uh Some of you may have seen, some of you may have uh, husbands or other people in your family who are interested in his halachic works, but these are also a fantastic series of works uh, on the Machshava, with the Hasidic bent, but not exclusively at all, uh, on the on the holidays. And in this volume here, on includes Sviyad Omer, uh, Rav Asher Weiss has a number of pieces about the Omer, and specifically about uh, the message of Lagba Omer. And I thought we would focus on that. So what I did was, uh, one or two uh, sources I kind of typed in, but for the most part, I kind of cut and pasted it to make as a PDF, um, the sources actually from his Sefer, and let's see how nifty I am with the share thing here. Here we go. Okay, so everyone should be able to uh, see the shear. Um, I can see some of you, uh, but at least hopefully we can all see the source sheet and we'll be able to uh, go through it together. So basically, uh, the text which we have to start with, you can't really speak about the Omer um, from a Musr or Machshava perspective, uh, and the Avelus of the Omer and how Lagba Omer plays in, uh, of course, without starting at the beginning. And the beginning, of course, is the famous Gemara in Masachet Yevamos, which is at the top of your page, on Daf Samach Bet, Amud Bet, where we are taught the famous and tragic uh, teaching that Shneim Asar Elef Zugim Talmidim Hayul Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students, in other words, 24,000 students, and they went from, uh, you know, Gevat Ad on Tirpas, I'm not even trying to pronounce that, but basically what we would say, you know, from Kiryat uh, Shemona to Eilat, from the north and south, the whole length and breadth of Eretz Yisrael, massive, massive amount of students. And tragically, they all died, in, at this point, in undetermined, but a single time period, because they weren't respectful of each other. As a result of this massive human catastrophe, there was also a spiritual catastrophe. Hayaha olam shameim. Right, the whole world was uh, desolate of Torah. There was no Torah because all of the Tamina Chachamim had died. It's really an unfathomable, horrific tragedy. Ad shebara bikiva etzel rabosenu shebedarom until Rabbi Kiva uh, convened five surviving. I think it's five or a handful of surviving Talmidim in the south. And then Rabbi Kiva basically restarted and rebuilt Tor Shabalpeh by teaching them. And who were they? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, and this is none other than Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Lazar ben Shamua. And says the Gemara very uh, climactically and very dramatically and triumphantly, the Haim Haim Ha'emidu Torah Osasha. And they are the ones who basically reestablished Torah at that critical and perilous time period. And almost as a PS, almost as a, you know, Derek Agav, the Gemara says, oh yeah, and by the way, Tana Kula Mesumi Pesach Aratzares. That in fact, when did all this take place? The Gemara previously had just said it was in one period, but it didn't tell us when. So the Gemara here concludes, Kula Mesu Mi Pesach Aratzares. They all died, in fact, in between Pesach and Shavuos. And we have a tradition, which we will come back to later in this year, 
we have a tradition that, uh, at least according to some, they specifically, and you could say miraculously, although we'll see perhaps it's not so miraculous, but they stop dying according to at least one theory, a popular theory, that is actually brought down in the Shulchan Aruch, that they actually stop dying on Lag Ba'omer. So even though it all took place in between Pesach and Shavuos, at least according to the predominant tradition, they actually stop dying on Lag Ba'omer. That is what we would call the Rekha. That is the background of everything uh, I'd like to speak about. And basically what I would like to do uh, in three steps, it all, again, just following in the, the very beautiful and easily understood and very organized and clear presentation from Rav Asher Weiss with whatever elaboration and explanation that I can add and provide, I'd like to discuss really three basic points. Uh, number one, what were they fighting about? What, 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 what was it that was so bad? What can we learn from the tragedy of this? The Lonohagu Kovod Zebazeh. What exactly did that mean? What exactly was going on? Number two is, I'd like to speak about why they Dafka stopped dying on Lagba Omer. You know, was that just a random thing? It's a lucky thing. It's coincidental. Is there anything we can possibly learn from that? And then lastly, what, what was exactly the big simcha? We know that uh, Lag Bomer itself has some level of simcha, even though some of the more popular uh, ceremonies or celebrations of Lag Bomer, perhaps not much of any of it will be taking place this year, but historically, uh, the bonfires, Mayron, and all sorts of other excesses, which are a relatively modern uh, idea. Uh, there were actually great post game like the Hassam Sofer and others, uh, who basically uh, railed against uh, the modern celebration of Lag Bomer. It was kind of a, a reform thing in their mind, or an innovation and no tradition. Uh, but the reality is on that, the Hassam Sofer lost. <laughs> Certainly in the Hasidic world, and uh, not only the Hasidic world, somewhat mainstream, even though it's not as extreme, outside of the Hasidic world, but some level of celebration, in some cases extreme, Alag Bomer has become pretty mainstream. But even in the Shulchan Aruch, it mentions that Lag Bomer is at least a little bit of a happy day. Um, and most importantly for many of us, uh, not everyone, but for many of us, we have a minhag that come Lag Bomer, uh, most if not all of the morning minhagim, not getting a haircut, music, most importantly weddings, are relaxed and people do those things afterwards. The question is, what exactly was the big simcha? Why all of a sudden is there a simcha? We'll start off by understanding why there was an avelut, why was there mourning, why was there a tragedy? But by the end, I want to understand what was exactly the great simcha, what are we celebrating, and what can we learn from there? Okay, so let's try to go back to the first question I had, which is, what exactly can we understand from their fighting? What was so bad? What was really going on with the uh, these great Tanoim, they were Tanoim. Had they not died, tragically, I'm sure we would have known their names of many of them in the Mishnayot. Uh, they would have been the prominent Talmidim of Rabbi Kiva. They were the Godole Hador of their generation. And yet, they're lost to history because of this horrible tragedy. And of course, it behooves us to try to understand what was going on there. So if you take a look at the, back at the source sheet, the first selection we have, and here it is, uh, in the, from Rav Asher Weiss, just with my little underlining there. Um, this is um, from Avasha Weiss in one of his essays, and he says as follows. We're at the top here, and I'll follow along with, my cur- with, the, uh, with the mouse here. I hope that helps you kind of see where I'm reading from. Hine, zos shuta. He says he thinks it's obvious. The alfei talmidav shel hatana hagadol rabikiva lo pogu zeh bechvodel shel zeh al hevle olam hazeh kibetz hakesav bechvod hamaduma. Says Avasha Weiss, he thinks, again, he doesn't, he's not quoting a source. He can't prove it. But he says he thinks it's obvious, it's intuitive, that people as holy and as learned and as saintly as Rabbi Kiva students weren't fighting over illusory honor, money, petty things. When we say that they were lo-nogu, basically, says Rasha Weiss, we're not talking about it the way you and I would fight. And the way you and I would get into an argument with the people in our neighborhood or our neighbor or the people in our shul or school or, you know, that kind of petty stuff. He says, hello, Talmidim Rabbi Akiva, how are you? Last line of the paragraph. He says, these are the great Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. It can't be that that's what they were fighting over. Rather, says of Russia Weiss, it must be. He says, it must be. What were they arguing over? They were arguing over ideological issues, religious fights, 
right? This person was uh, more Tzioni, and this one was more Haredi, and he believed in only Torah only, and he believed in Torah and Derech Eretz, and he said you should go to the army, and he said you shouldn't go to the army, and he said you could eat Kabraks, he said you can't eat Kabraks, and you should have secular studies, you shouldn't have secular studies, you should be neo-Hasidic, you shouldn't be neo-Hasidic, uh, separate sex education, co-ed education, you should go to youth groups, you shouldn't go to youth groups, you should play sports, you shouldn't play sports, who knows, all sorts of different ideological issues, whatever we could transport or imagine would have been the ideological issues of the day. And says of Russia Weiss, apparently they were so passionate, they were so burning with a fire for whatever their righteous indignation was over their particular uh, position, that they were able to get into huge uh, fights over that. In fact, he points out here in the next little selection that uh, this is implied or hinted at in a short comment, not in the Gemara, but in the Medrash, the Medrash in Kohelis Rabbah, that when it describes Rabbi Kiva's students, it says, Shahisa Einam Tsara Betora Zat Mizeh. That there was a certain Tsara, there was a certain, um, I'm not even sure, it's not, it's not easy to translate that, so to speak, literally, but Shahisa Einam Tsara, they were basically stingy. Uh, in other words, the fighting was Bitorah. That's the Dagesh. That's the Diuk that Rav Asher Weiss is making. That the fighting wasn't Stam, but the fighting was Bitorah. Zemizad. They were fighting over Torah issues, ideological issues, things like that. And that was uh, part of the issue uh, in their fighting. So if that's the case, so says Rav Asher Weiss in the next paragraph, what we see here is, even though Haisa Kavanosam L'Shem Shemayim V'Ruach Kinas Hashem Tzavakos Pi'ima B'Libam and this is a very, very uh, important point. Says Rav Asher Weiss, you have to realize that even if they were righteous in their indignation, even if they were doing this for all sorts of principled reasons, and they had all these things that they believed in, it doesn't necessarily matter. This is the first point. I, you know, if nothing else, this is probably already makes the sheer worthwhile. But it's worth noting, on the one hand, what Rav Asher Weiss is saying is, don't think of these as little petty people arguing over Narishkeit and Shtuyot. No, no, these were much bigger than that. Okay, I, I, I can accept that. I think it's a certain intuitive argument he's making. But says Rav Weiss, goes hand in hand with that. We learned a tremendous lesson. You might think, and I think we, many of us, and certainly many people in our generation, succumb to this very Yetzirah, which is why I want to underscore that it's actually wrong, and is a Yetzirah. We might think, if I'm L'Shem Shamayim. It's not my pettiness. It's not about kavod. It's not about silly things. It's about ideological things, things I care about, I'm passionate about. If we often think if that's why we're, uh, you know, so getting into a fight, if that's why we embarrassed a person, if that's why we had to yell at a person, if that's why we had to take a stand, after all, don't, you know, I'm not a bad person. It's all the shame shamayim and I'm sincere. So, we don't have to be cynical. We don't have to suggest that they're faking it or they're hypocritical. They could be tocham, kebaram, sincere, tzaddikim, and really, really mean it. And yet, and yet, says Rav Asher Weiss, you see from that, that's no excuse. That's no excuse. The world was basically destroyed, or at least the Torah world was destroyed because of their righteous indignation, because of their righteous sinas chinam, if you will, if I could uh, coin a, a phrase which on the you know on some deep levels basically an oxymoron. If I could coin this righteous sinas chinam is not righteous at all. That's the very point. It's true that it was more you know we could in a certain sense gibi dalakavschus that they were principled people and they cared about things. Okay, that's good, and we respect all that. But in the end of the day, says Rav Asher Weiss, it doesn't change the fact that, Gemara says, they were all wiped out in this horrible plague, and clearly the lesson for us to learn is that that is not an excuse to get into fights, even if you have the most uh, sincere sincere in, uh, intentions. As a, uh, so to speak, mushal, or as a comparison to this, Rav Asher Weiss quotes here on the bottom of the page, and uh, from the Nitziv. Some of you may uh, have been familiar with this or have learned this in a previous time. Uh, this is a very, very famous statement of the Nitziv, uh, the great Nitziv of Elijah, in the introduction to his commentary on the Chumash, the Hamek Dover. So he discusses the fact that, as we all know, the Gemara says that the second Beit Migdash was destroyed because of Sinas Chinam. So there also, 
you know, when you read that Gemara, and that's not just talking about rabbis per se, that's talking about the average person who lived in that generation, it's, you know, the simple understanding is that they fought over silly things and petty things. People cut in line, and they argued over business, and they argued over Shiduchim, and they argued over all the Narishkeit that we argue over. But the Nitziv actually there also says a similar point. He says, no, these people were Tzadikim, Hasidim, Amalei Torah. He says, what was the problem? They weren't Yesharim. They weren't straight. What does it mean to be straight? So he explains very beautifully. He says, The Sinas Chinna that the Gemara describes in the second base of Migdash, Choshtu etzeh et mi shero noheg shalok da'atam b'yiras Hashem shutzeduki v'apikaris. And this is very famous because you would think of the Sina, that the Nitziv was living in 2020, 57, 80. He could be, or he was living five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. He certainly seems to be speaking to our generation and recent generations. Says the Nitziv, you know what the issue was? Everyone looked at a person who look, who dressed a little differently, who thought a little different, who observed mitzvot a little differently. Instead of saying he's different, she's different. They're not like me. It's okay. They have their school. I have my school. They have their shul. I have my shul. Instead of saying that, they said, oh, that person who dresses differently, who thinks a little differently, who observes mitzvot a little differently. No, he's a heretic. He's not from. He's a shagitz. Right? Sounds like a world that we're very familiar with, painfully. So says the Nitziv, that was their sin as And because of that, once you start demonizing other people and you can think that they're heretics, chas v'shalom could even lead to, he says, shvichas damim, in the worst kind of a way. And, and then the Nitziv adds this incredibly powerful line here after the three dots here at the bottom of the page. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yashar Hu Ve'eno Sovel Tzadikim Ke'ela Right, very, very powerful line. On one level, these people could have been tzaddikim. They daven, they learn, they do chesed with people who are just like them. Just like them. They're chesed with people who are just in their, in their crowd. They're big tzaddikim. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu says the Nitziv wasn't interested in such kinds of tzaddikim. Those, they may be tzaddikim in many ways. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is still not interested. Because their intolerance for other people's religiosity disqualified them. And says Rav Usher Weiss, he thinks as a parallel, that's the same thing that happened with Rabbi Akiva students. Yes, they were arguing about all sorts of ideological things, that they were L'shem Shemayim. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then Rav Usher Weiss adds in his own words a very powerful paragraph here. I'm at the top of the next page. Yesh she'ahavas ha-makom me'via if I could underline that, if I could highlight that, if I could send that out to you know the whole world, that would be one of my choices of, if I had to pick one sentence to send to everyone. How powerful, how relevant, tragically, how resonant a line. You know, people, you know as much as things stay, change, they stay the same. Says Rav Asher Weiss, there are people whose avas Hashem leads them to sinas chinam. It's not independent, and it's not saying he's a hypocrite, or she's a hypocrite. They have sincere avas Hashem. But they have a distorted Avas Hashem. They have an Avas Hashem which is so narrow-minded, as intense and sincere it is, but it doesn't leave room for anybody else who's even a little bit differently than them. And it's Gufa, the very Avas Hashem that they have, leads them to hate, hate excuse me, other people. The Ein Zerotzon Hashem. And says of Rosh again, echoing that Nitziv so powerfully, that is not what God wants from us. Ki if you truly love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, ipso facto, that must mean that you love His children, you love the Jewish people. And if you actually hate a fellow Jew, by definition, there's some chisaron, there's some imperfection in your love of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And in fact, afterwards he quotes, I won't read it inside, but he basically quotes this point uh, explicitly from Rashi. Uh, on the Torah. And again, this is a point that I've had opportunities, I'm not sure if it's in this context or in the shul or in other contexts, certainly on Tisha B'Av, I've made this point in previous years uh, where I speak in YU in the Gruss Center, that this is a very basic principle. On one level, it's very deep. On another level, it's easy, easy to understand on our level. When you just have one equation, which is that, as the Mishnah in Perkei tells us, Chavivin Yisrael Shebanim Lamakom. The Jewish people are Hashem's children. Well, if we take that seriously, if we realize that we're truly Hashem's children, so obviously, to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu means to treat His children well. 
right? I can tell you on a personal level, I don't care how much you tell me you love me, Rabbi Gottlieb, you're the best rabbi, the best person, the best neighbor, the best teacher, all that stuff. But I see the way you treat my children on the street, in shul, maybe in, in chugim, you know, so-and-so, my kid, they hate, you admit, yeah, you're right, Rabbi Gottlieb, I love you, but your children, I can't stand them, and I hate them. How do you think I'm going to feel about you? You think I'm going to say, well, you know, I wish you loved my children, but oh, at least you love me. Right? What kind of parent would that make me? What kind of person would that make me? The answer is obviously not. No one is interested in somebody loving or respecting them, but hating their children. Right? The greatest way you could show your affection for a person and your respect for the person is loving and treating their children well. Right, which is also on the flip side. Let's think positively for a second. I'm sure we've all been the beneficiaries of people taking, treating our children well. And if people treat our children well, then if people treat our children well, by the way, for the record, you shouldn't be able to give a sheer when your wife's sending you private chats making jokes. Okay, I just want to make that out there. Okay, that's not fair. Okay, it was about the sheer, but she's still making jokes that are making me laugh. So. Please stop that, okay? Thank you. Alana, if you have a joke, share it with the crowd, okay? Don't just share it with me on a private chat. Um, now that we're all intimate. So the bottom line is, the point I think is obvious, and it just needs underscoring, but, um, okay, stop it. I can't give the shit if you keep on making jokes. Um, the bottom line is that if you love Hashem, then you have to love His children, because just like we wouldn't appreciate anyone's love, we wouldn't feel close to someone who mistreated our children. And I would say conversely, we're so appreciative and we love so deeply the people who do take care of our children. Right? If that's why whenever, again, whether it's a teacher in camp, or even in the good times, let alone if your child had a crisis and someone intervened and helped your child, right? your love, your affection, your cars are told for that person is unending. But the flip side is if someone hurt your child, wronged your child, that would be, you know, how could you have a relationship with that person at any deep level? So similarly, says Rav Asher Weiss, based on this idea of the Nitziv and others, you can't possibly think you're going to be truly oiv as Hashem if you are um, not treating Hashem's children well. Okay, Ad Khan, so to speak, part one. Let's move uh, a little quicker now to part two of this year, which is uh, the Simcha of Lagba Omer, and why is it that Davka, on the 33rd day, Lagba Omer, they stop dying. So here, Rav Asher Weiss, here, this is part two. He has a beautiful, beautiful Chiddush. And he bases this Chiddush of why they stop, why on Lagba Omer they stop dying? Why not on the 30th day? Why not on the 40th day? Why Davka on Lagba Omer? So he uses uh, as a background for this a Chiddush of Rav Yisrael Salanter. Here you see on the second line. And I'll paraphrase for the sake of time. We won't read it inside. Rav Yisrael Salanter says the following. In the sixth parak of Perkeyavos, there is a brisa or a Mishnah that says that the Torah can be nicknamed, so you can acquire mastery over Torah with 48 attributes, 48 kinyanim. And Rabbi Sral Salanter apparently had a tradition that these 48 attributes, these 48 kinyanim, should be studied over the course of the 49 days of Siras Omer. Right? The number almost works out. Math was not my uh, forte ever, but I do know that 48 is not exactly the same as 49. It almost works out. If you go with this tradition, then the next question would be, well, why is there an extra day? What's the extra day for? If there's 48 things you have to master for Torah, why are there 49 days of the Omer? And there are answers to that question, but it's not our topic. But the point, such of Asher Weiss, for our purposes is that if you start on the first day of the Omer and you start counting... Every day you're supposed to take another one of the attributes of the Mishnah, of the Brisa, and try to perfect them so that by the time you get to Shavuos and Kabbalah Satora, you have all 48 of these Kinyanim. So says Rav Asher, that's Rav Yisrael Salanter. Ad Kanar, the great Rav Yisrael Salanter. So if you look in the... <clears throat> uh, where is it? Oh, did I not put it on the... I might have forgotten to put it on here when I was cutting and pasting. Okay. Anyway, the no, uh, well, the next point... Actually, no, you know, I'm sorry. I, I got it right here. The next point, the next paragraph here. So says this is Rav Weiss's Chiddush, as far as I know, and it's a beautiful insight. He says, if you look at the list, what's, day, what's number 32? What's Kenyan Lamed Bet? Now, the truth of the matter is, there are different ways to count them. And when I once taught the, this... Uh, this series, I once gave a, sheer, a bunch of shirim on this topic, so for me, this was number 33, and that wouldn't work out perfectly for him. But says Rav Asher Weiss, at least the way he counts them, number 32, Yom Lamed Bet, 
is which one? Second line here. Ohe vesabrios. Loving your fellow man. That's day 32. So says of Asher Weiss, that cannot be a coincidence. Rather, what happened? The students of Rabbi Akiva, suffering this terrible plague, realizing that it was their own behavior that caused this terrible destruction. So he says, They realized their mistake. Right? How rare is that? Right? It should be elementary, my dear Watson, that if you realize you did something wrong, you should say you're sorry or try to improve yourself. But we all know how rare that is in general and especially seems in our generation for anyone to admit that they were wrong and actually try to improve themselves. Rabbi Kiva's students realized they did something wrong and they were working on themselves. And every day, another midah, another midu. But he shlimu as nafsh and ba'avas Yisrael. And eventually they got to the point of true avas Yisrael. They understood that even if there are differences, they have to love each other, respect each other. They truly became truly soulmates, blood brothers. They loved each other the way Jews are supposed to. And as a result, he says, An amazing insight. He says, since day 32 was the day of Oevis Abrios, their, their tshuva process, they rehabilitated themselves, it culminated, it reached the climax of per, spiritual perfection on day 32. That's when they finally did the tshuva gemura of fully, fully repenting because they finally got that point of avas abrios. Right? Avas abrios on day 32 of the Omer, says Rabbi Weiss, is the tikkun, is the corrective for what the Gemara says was their mistake. Shalom nahogu kavod zebazeh. Abbas Abrios, the opposite of Lonagu Kovod Zabazet. And when did they finally reach that point? Wouldn't you know it? When was that? Day 32. So says Rabbi Shawais, when they finally got that point, they got to the 32nd of the Kinyane Torah. And that wasn't <coughs> about something intellectual or certain study habits or learning seriousness, but rather 32 is, Oh, hey, Vesabrios, love your fellow Jew. In that context, once they reached that point and really internalized that, they didn't just say the words, but they truly internalized that, that was the culmination of their tshuva shalema, their tshuva gemura, and therefore as a result, mimela, as it were, the magefa, the plague stopped, and the students stopped dying the next day. He adds something which is very, very important here uh, on this point. On uh, the next paragraph here on the bottom, which is that even though I translated it, and this is clearly what the con- the context is, Oevas Abrios, you should love your fellow Jew. But Rav Asher Weiss notes that it's not necessarily the way I would have would have thought to make the phrase. I would have said Avas Yisrael or something like that. Why does it use the term Brios? And especially since Brios, if you understood it literally, God's creatures, you might have thought that this is an animal rights uh, argument that you should love even inanimate objects or animals. And says of Rosh he just thinks that that's ridiculous. There's no way. He says in the second line of this uh, third paragraph here, The mission is not talking about loving animals. Why would he use the term Brios, which could refer even to non-human life? Why Dafka Brios? So he points out something very beautiful. He says, if you take a look, it's none other than Rabbi Akiva himself. Rabbi Akiva himself in Pirkeiavos, in the third parak. See here? Pirkeiavos, Paragimel Mishnah Yedal, Rabbi Akiva says, Chaviv Adam Shenivra B'Tselem. What gives people their dignity? What gives people the, the right to be treated with respect? That they were Nivra B'Tselem. That they were created in God's image. Every human being is not just a human being, but we actually have a, a bit, some element, however we understand that, of God inside of us, of godliness inside of us. And what's the point here? So it says in Russia, why something very, very important, which we can never forget. What Rabbi Kiva is teaching us is that the reason we have to treat people with respect is because they were created in God's image. Umishum Kane, therefore, Yeshlachabed Kal Adam. After all, Halo Yitzir Kapov Shalkarjbarhu, every person, every man and woman, they are none less than the creation of Hashem. The Nivra Bitmuso Batsamo, the created in the image and the likeness of God. Lafikh Yeshlachabed Kal Adam. Bain Godal Hubachma, Bain Mikatne Adasu, Hare Kulam, 
B'Tselem Elokim Nivru. They're all created in the image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is something that's very, very important that we have to re- realize. And with this, we'll conclude the second uh, section, and we're about to move to the third and final section in a moment. But let's summarize, and if there are any questions, uh, I'll be happy to take them now. Says Rav Asher Weiss, what you see here, and for the very fact that the language of the Mishnah is um, specifically that Oevas Abrios, and he points out, by the way, that numerous Kamaras that speak about treating people with respect often use that term as well. Godol Kavod Habrios. That's often the term that's used. Brios. Why Brios? Why something that seems to be so universalistic and not anything that's remotely particularistic about being a Jew or anything like that? So says of Weiss, the point is that the essence, the reason we treat everyone with respect, isn't because they're nice people. It isn't because they're very firm and sincere and pious. That's like a cherry on top. And obviously we're all attracted to people who we respect. We're all attracted to people who are genuinely nice. That's, you know, I mean, let's just put it this way. If we're nice people, we're attracted to people who are nice and we want to be friends with and, you know, neighbors with people like that. That's all fine and good. That's allowed. But that's the cherry on top. The baseline, the foundation of the respect we have for people has nothing to do with their behavior or how much we like them or don't like them or how much they would or wouldn't be the kind of people we want to have Shabbos lunch with. The foundation of the respect that we have to have for every person is because they were created with Selim Elohim. And you know who was created to Elohim? You, me, him, her, everybody. It doesn't matter how learned or not learned, religious or not religious, nice or not nice. We all have to be as good a people as we can be. But no matter how much we do or don't like or enjoy other people's company, a basic level of respect is deserved by everybody and demanded because they were all created B'Tselem Elohim. They are all the Nivraim. They are all the create those who are created of Akadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, that is the basis of under, of respecting everybody. And that is that what is, <coughs> Rosh Weiss is kind of a cutesy, but I think it's a very beautiful idea. Um, that's why the Magefa, that's why the death of Bikiva students, Dafka stopped on Lag Ba'omer, because on Lab Ba'omer, on the 32nd day, that's when they finally got this message of Oives Abrios, treating everyone with respect, even though they do agree, don't agree, uh, or not. Okay, so any questions before we go on? Or at least give me an opportunity to rest my voice for a millisecond. No questions. Okay, fantastic. Always good to get a thumbs up from my wife. It's more rare than you might think. Okay, so let's continue and get into uh, the third and final part of the shear. Uh, which is, now that we've seen what the problem was, the problem was, and we explained that it wasn't just random or uh, petty uh, fighting, but it was ideological, even though they thought that the big issues legitimated fighting, but they were wrong. And then we just saw the idea that they died on, they stopped dying on Lag Bomer because that's when they finally got the message and improved their Avas Abrios. So now I want to discuss the third and final issue, which is, what is the Simcha of Lag Bomer? What is the Simcha of Lag Bomer? So the simple answer to the question, which I already alluded to, is that the Simcha said they stopped dying. In fact, some of the, again, it's not clear from the Gemara that that happened on Lagba Omer, but we have a tradition that already goes back to the time of the Rishonim, that they uh, stopped dying on Lagba Omer, and in fact, the Shulchan Aruch brings this down, Shulchan Aruch brings down this tradition that they stopped dying on Lagba Omer, and that seems to be the basis of the happiness. However, there are other theories uh, and in part, one could ask the question, you know, if I told you, um, if Rahman al-Atzlan, uh, you know, if somebody, uh, you know, I don't know, just imagine some family, I don't know, they had, I don't know, 12 children or something like that, and there was this terrible disease. <laughs> we can imagine that, unfortunately, nowadays, much more than we ever could. Uh, and, you know, child after child was dying. And then, even though 90% of the children died, you know, at, at a certain date, Two children remained, and they stopped dying. I have no doubt that parents would be relieved, but I don't know that they would celebrate the date of the death of their last child. Whew, Baruch Hashem, the death stopped. Right? In other words, there's a difference between being relieved that at least one or two are still alive and saying, this is a happy day. This is a day of Simcha, because the Magefa stopped. Really? It's a day of Simcha? 24,000 people died. 
It's a relief that five people still stayed alive. There were a few Rabbanim still in the south who were alive. We saw that in the Gemara. But that's the happiness. So again, the answer could be, yeah, that's what it means. But there also might be a deeper message. And here, Avasha Weiss quotes from the great uh, Sephardi uh, Posek and unbelievable author and uh, great Akron, the Chida, Abchaim Yosef Dovid Azulai, who had like a hundred books. So he was a, one of the most prolific authors in history. So one of his Sfarim called the Ma'aris Ayin, so he is actually discussing a different point, which is, as you probably know, um, and this is where the bonfires and Meron and all that stuff comes from, there's a whole other element to Lag Bomber, which I haven't even gone near, which is the whole question of did Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai die on that day, and even if he died, why would that be a happy thing? But okay, that is a tradition. So if you ask the average chassid, why is Lag Bomer a good thing? They will tell you because it's Rav Shuram Bar Yochai's Hilula. The Yorts of Shuram Bar Yochai. So it turns out, according to the Chidah, none, none less authority than the Chidah, it's not true. Says the Chidah, he didn't die in Lag Bomer. Okay, so if, if, if all of your Lag Bomer was built on that fact, so um, you know, take a deep breath. But... I'm not focusing on that to begin with, so let's leave that aside. But once he makes that point, then the Chidah continues. He says, He says, no, I'll give you a different reason. Why was there Simcha on Lagba Omer? It's true, it's after the death of the 24,000. But listen carefully. He doesn't say the celebration or the happiness is because they stopped dying. Because again, we already pointed out, it's a little bit weird, even though we kind of take it for granted. But if you think about it, it's not exactly clear that that should be a celebratory fact, a celebratory date. Rather, he continues, and he says, after the 24,000 students died, Hayahaolam shamein below Torah. Then there was no Torah. Until Rabbi Kiva taught these students in the south, etc., etc. And then he adds, the Haim, Haim, Ha'emidu Torah. They are the ones that saved, that salvaged, that saved all of Torah. What's the point here? It says Rav Asher Weiss. Yisoda shel ha-chabura ha-chadasha. Yisuda, excuse me. The establishment, the foundation of this new chabura of learners. Sheheficha Torah b'gacheles sheris ha Right, that gave a new life. The brew, the blue, a new breath of life into that remnant of five people left. When did that start? On Lag Omer. In other words, what are we celebrating, says Rav Weiss? We're celebrating and we're happy, not that they stopped dying. That 24,000 people died, it's a tragedy. The celebration for all generations of Lag Omer isn't just that they stopped dying. That alone might not have been a celebratory fact. That was just a, a, a relief, but not a celebration. The celebration is umishum kach zayom simchahu b'zuhais hachal mechadash binyano haruchani shakla Israel. The celebration, the simcha of Lag Omer is because that's when Rabbi Kiva started over. What we're celebrating in Lag Omer is not looking back that they stopped dying. It's the fact that the Torah and the commitment to restart and relearn and renew the commitment to limud haTorah. That took place on Lagba Omer. It's not enough just that they stopped dying. What we're really celebrating for all generations on Lagba Omer is not the end of the death, but the starting of the learning. That's the key date. In theory, hypothetically, had the plague stopped on Lagba Omer, but they couldn't get down to start, you know, took a few days to figure out how to use Zoom and uh, to work all the things out, and it took a few days to start up the yeshiva again, and that was three days later, says Rav Weiss, three days later, that would have been the celebratory day. The Ikar, again, we're happy on a human level uh, that the death stopped. But that's not celebration. When death stops, we take a deep breath and we mourn. We don't celebrate. Right? Just imagine, again, uh, some, many of us have had this, you know, with a relative, a grandparent or something like that, an elder relative, they've been sick for a long time, and they finally pass away after suffering and stuff. You're relieved sometimes, but you wouldn't say, I'm happy. 24,000 people died. No, says Rav Weiss, from the Chidah. The real celebration is not that people stopped dying. The real celebration is the Torah got started again. Torah was almost gone. Torah was on its last legs. There were five people left to teach. But they started again and made a commitment, and that took place on 
Lag Baomer. Now, that itself is a tremendous insight um, of the Chidah, something I'm very, very partial towards. But I want to just end with one more point, which is what Rav Asher Weiss, and I believe this is his own observation, and it just comes from his incredible breadth of knowledge, uh, he adds one more nuance to this, which I think is very, very effective and very valuable. Um, and he says uh, as follows, Rav Asher Weiss makes the point that if you look, and we'll, we'll do a few, I'll show you a few examples in a second, but if you look at who the five, six Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva were, who restarted and renewed all of Torah in the south after Lag Bomer, after the death of all these people, and then, with the help of Rav Asher Weiss's massive encyclopedic knowledge, if you do that, you will see, says Rav Asher Weiss, something that cannot be a coincidence. That in source after source, these very rabbis, the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva, the survivors, the Sheris Plata, those who survived the great plague of Rabbi Akiva students, more often than not, many of the statements we have from them throughout Chazal speak about Bein Adam Lachavero, human sensitivity, and treating people with respect. Isn't that incredible? Could that be a coincidence? That many of the most important statements we have in Chazal, all about how you should treat people with respect, how important Avas Yisrael is, Kovod Abrios, the authors of many of those striking statements and important statements are none other than these very students. So for example, if we take a look at some of the sources that Rav Asherwise marshals, I didn't give you all of them, I just gave you a few. But if you take a look, for example, he starts off with Rebbe Meir, right? Rebbe Meir was one of the people who the Gemara listed, who counted, who survived. What did Rebbe Meir teach us? Right? The way you treat your fellow Jew. You give your fellow Jew a blessing, you wish him well, a good Shabbos, he should be well, he or she started a new job, they moved to a new neighbor, a new house, it should be with mazel, it should be geben, she should have atzlacha. It's a little nothing, we don't even think about it, right? Hopefully for nice people, for polite people, we do this all the time, right? Says the mayor, don't look lightly on that. To say a kind word, to give a blessing to a fellow Jew, that's as if you're blessing the Shekhinah itself, right? Again, it seems like a little pithy uh, statement. But what underlies that statement of mayor? Obviously, tremendous respect for his fellow Jew. Vod continues Rav Asher Weiss. Rabbi Meir is also the author in Pirkei Avos. Heavy Shafal Ruach, Bifnei Kol Adam. The idea of being modest, of being humble, of not thinking you know everything, not lording yourself over other people. Again, that seems to be the kind of message that the students of Rabbi Kiva were guilty of not observing. And therefore, how striking is it? That it was none other than one of Rabbi Kiva's students who teaches us this great lesson about how important it is to be modest to other people. Moreover, he says, now towards the bottom of the page, a third source in the Gemara and the Yerushalmi, it talks about in the name of Rabbi Yehuda. Again, one of the people that's quoted as one of the students of Rabbi Kiva. What does Rabbi Yehuda say here in the Medrash as well? You say hello to somebody, you invite them over, you welcome them in, you take good care of them, you give them a good lunch, you say, well, that's a nice act of chesed. Yes, it's an act of chesed. Yes, it's a benam l'chaveiro. But, says Rameir, it's much more than that. That's as if you took care of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, as if you helped out a Kodesh Baruch Hu himself. Now, I would add, the reason is, on a again, on some mystical level, maybe uh, that might be true too. But on, a, on a, what I would call my level, a little bit more of a lower level ra- that I can understand more rationally, I would understand it based on the same idea we mentioned previously, which the Kaddish Baruch was our child. And therefore, if you take care of a person's child, you're basically taking care of them, right? That's how they feel, right? Every one of us here on this year have had, over the, or in, the, in the last few years, um, perhaps the Gottlieb and the Clappers most, because uh, we work in this field, maybe, maybe also uh, the wax stocks. Um, if you work in the Shana Ba'aretz field, right? Or even Stam, you, everyone's got relatives or friends from Teaneck and from West Hempstead and who knows where in Los Angeles, Chicago, right? We're constantly hosting people. People are here for the years, students. So I don't know if they always tell us, but I hope at minimum, even if they don't always tell us, but their parents, back wherever they are, I would hope have tremendous Akar Satov. And every now and then the parents do reach out to us. I know, uh, I don't get so many of these notes from parents, but I know sometimes my wife does. When there are people will write to them and say, oh, my daughter had the best Shabbos of her year at your house and she loved it and is so appreciative. 
right? If you're a menschlich person and somebody gives your parents and your children a nice Shabbos or helps them in any other way, I'm just giving one convenient example, right? You feel like you were taken care of. You feel like personally you benefited. That's exactly what Rabbi Yehuda is saying. When you take care of his children, you're taking care of him as well. We'll just do, I think, uh, two more, uh, or three more, then we'll stop. On the last page, we're almost done. Another one in the Gemara here on top of the page. Says Rabbi Huda, a person teaches you, he's not a big Tamachacham, he's not the biggest Lamdan, he's not your rabbi of Yeshul, or your teacher in Yeshiva or seminary, didn't teach you a lot of things. Just taught you one Mishnah, one Halacha, one Pasuk. But you have to realize, even if they taught you one thing, have respect for them, appreciate them, they're like your Rebbe. And again, all of this is underlying a tremendous respect for your fellow Jew, or a tremendous respect, even if they're not the most learned person, if you learned even a little thing from them, have a kar satov, be appreciative of them. Furthermore, he quotes from Rav Shimon, other than Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, who says in the Gemara Brochos, and even if you want to understand this Gemara non-literally and more hyperbolically, which is the way most Mepharshim do understand the Gemara, but still, what an unbelievable statement. Better to throw yourself into a burning fiery furnace than to embarrass another person. And of course, this is learned out from Tamar, who was about to literally be burned at the stake, and she still didn't embarrass Yehuda. She hinted to Yehuda that he had done something wrong and she was really uh, innocent. And thank God Yehuda understood the message. He accepted responsibility and saved Tamar's life. But you see that Tamar was willing to allow herself to be burnt to death rather than embarrass Yehuda. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai teaches us in the Gemara that wasn't just because Rabbi Yehuda, it's not just because Yehuda was Yehuda, one of the Shvatim, the great Yehuda. No. Any person, better you should die than embarrass another person uh, in public. And last but not least, he mentions this final thing, but this will conclude from the Mishnah in Avos and Perak Dalid, the Rabbi Lazar ben Shamua, who's the last one of the students who's mentioned in the Gemara, he left a tremendous legacy, a tremendous ethical will, if you will, says Rabbi Asher Weiss, a message for all of us, which is, Yehi chavod tamidcha even your students, and I would understand students here to mean not just literally for those of us who work in the world of chinuch and teach. Students mean anyone who we feel is, so to speak, beneath us. Anyone who we feel we're above. In many cases, maybe we are. Maybe we are more accomplished. Maybe we are, we are more learned. Maybe we are more religious. It doesn't matter. Have as much respect for them as you have for yourself. And if it's someone who is your equal, someone who is your friend, then you should have even more respect for them than you have for yourself. Respect them like you would respect one of your own rebbeim. And last but not least, And of course, your teachers, your rebbeim, so they have to respect as if you were respecting Kodesh Baruch Hu himself. In other words, says Rabbi Lazar ben Shamua, whoever you're looking at, raise them a level. Right? Unfortunately for many people, I don't want to say for us, because hopefully it's not true about us, but for many people, we do the exact opposite. We are always looking to bring people down. I know that he or she did all this great stuff, but not, you know, that's really because of this, and they got lucky, or, or their parents helped them, or they have connections, or we always are looking to knock people. When I say we, I shouldn't say we, because I hope it's not we. But it is a common problem, unfortunately. And where Abelazar ben Shamua was saying the opposite, don't knock people, don't pull people down a level. In, the, in your eyes, lift them up. If they're beneath you, think of them on your level. If they're on your level, think of them above you. If they are above you, think of them even on the level of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But whoever they are, quote-unquote, think of them and treat them even better, even better than they might objectively, so to speak, deserve. And again, the point is, for our purposes, and what this will conclude, is not any of the individual uh, citations that we just mentioned, and I think I left out a few of them that Rav Asher collected as well. But even the four, five, six things that we saw, the real point, and this is, I think, was Rav Asher genius to notice this and to put it in one place and to gather it for us, is the cumulative impact of seeing all of these memrot, all of these statements of Chazal, of these great Tanoim, back to back to back to back. Right, there's a common thread in all of them, which is about appreciating people, respecting people, even if they're different than you, even if they're less learned than you. And Cesar Varshawais, again, you could have learned all four or five of these Gemaras, Midrashim, uh, Mishnayot, and each one of them seems nice. 
but the 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 impact and the genius that I want to bring out from Avashar Weiss in this essay is that he noticed not only to look at all of them together, but that all of them are authored by none other than the surviving students of Rabbi Akiva. It can't be a, it can't be a coincidence. Rather, it's a powerful example and expression to us that they learned the lesson of the great plague. It's horrible to go through something terrible like that. I am sure they had what psychologists call survivor's guilt. Right? Could you imagine going through that? I often speak about Rabbi Akiva. Can you imagine the guilt that Rabbi Akiva felt? But to be the Rebbe, to be a leader, to be the captain of the ship, and lose 24,000 students, it's mind-boggling. The great Panevich who was one of the only Rabbanim from Lithuania to survive, the Rabbanim of Lithuania were destroyed by the Nazis. And somehow, it's a very mysterious, miraculous story, the Panevich survived, eventually made it to Israel, and as we know, rebuilt uh, B'nai Barak, you know, built B'nai Barak and the Panevich Yeshiva here. But in the Hespadim for the Panevich some of his greatest Talmudim pointed out, again, this is a man who, you know, wasn't, uh, uh, you know, just uh, curled up in a ball all the years after the Holocaust. He was one of the greatest builders of modern state of Israel, a post-Holocaust jury. And yet, his closest students, and their hespadim for him, said that his whole life, every day of his life after the Holocaust, he was plagued with survivor's guilt. Why did I survive in my Talmudim and my, and my congregants from Ponovich in Lithuania, how come they didn't? How come I survived? What can I do to justify my survival? And whenever I think of Rebbe Akiva this time of year, that's what I think about. Could you imagine being a Rebbe who had such a catastrophic failure? If it would be me, I've said this more than once publicly, if it would have been me, I'd crawl up in a ball on the floor in a corner and I'd never get up. I know, I know myself, I am not strong enough to handle such a thing. And yet Rebbe Akiva didn't just handle it, he bounced back. And he rebuilt the entire Torah Shabbat Every bit of Torah Shabbat that you and I have, which is basically all halacha that you and I observe, it's all directly attributable to Rabbi Kiva and those five students. There would be no Torah. All of Torah Shabbat was lost. It hadn't been written down yet. It was all lost until Rabbi Kiva saved it at the last moment with those five students. So Rabbi Kiva is an unbelievable hero. But these five students also, unbelievable. They could easily have been crushed themselves. And even if they survived, you could easily have said, look, everyone else died. We must be very special. I'm definitely better than everybody else. They all died. I survived. And yet you see, says Rosh Weiss, in their rebuilding of Torah, they didn't do that. Adarabah, they appreciated what, you know, the great chesed that Akash Baruch Hu gave in letting them survive. And clearly in their own lives and in their teaching to us, in addition to all the other halachos that they taught us, as they rebuilt Torah Shabbat for us, but they also, again, it's not a coincidence, that they are, they are one of the most common authors of some of the most important and striking statements of Ben Amla Chavero, of respect, of mutual respect in Kavanah Brios that we have in all of the Mishnayak and the Midrashic literature, which is an incredible lesson that they didn't just survive, but they took the lesson of the death of their friends and their colleagues, and when they survived, they didn't just pat themselves on the back, but they wanted to make sure that they could convey to future generations that they learned the lesson, and hopefully, hopefully, Halavai, all of us will learn the lesson. So I hope that uh, this has been clear, and we have gone through, again, just to very briefly review, three points. We start off with why they died to begin with, what does that mean, Shalonago, Kovod, Zebazeh, and we said, based on an idea similar to the Nitziv, that it was a religious, ideological thing, and even though we might be tempted to say, oh, you see, they're not bad people, they were all Hashem Shamayim. The answer is no, says Rav Asher Weiss. No, says the Nitziv. Just being Hashem Shamayim is not an excuse for sin askinam, is not an excuse for being a bad guy, it's not an excuse for not having covered a brios. If anything, it makes it worse. Then we discussed why did they dafka stop dying in Lag Omer? Was that a coincidence? You know, they found the vaccine all of a sudden? They finally found the vaccine on Lag Omer. No, said Rav Asher Weiss. Because on Lag Omer on the 32nd day, they got to the message of Kavad Abrio. So when they finally got that, their tshuva was shlema, their tshuva gemura, and then Memela naturally, the plague stopped. And last but not least, in, their, in, their, in, the, in the last and most significant chapter of their lives, they made sure to convey and pass on that they learned the message, and they underscored all those lessons of Kavad Abrios and Ahavas Yisrael. So with that, I say thank you very much for listening. Thank you, everyone, for uh, coming. Uh, virtually, it's good to see some of your faces. Um, and I hope uh, 
hopefully not too quickly, but at the right time, it seems uh, hopefully soon enough, we'll all be able to reconvene uh, in person and in shul. And I wish everyone well, and uh, thank you very much for joining the year.